You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Imagine you've worked for the CIA for 20 years. And now imagine you leave the CIA and you want to start your own private intelligence firm on your own and you get clients that need you to investigate different frauds or whatever. How do you use what you learned at the CIA in your own private business? So Mike Baker, who worked for the CIA for 20 years, author of Company Rules, Everything I Know About Business I Learned from the CIA by Mike Baker, and it's going to appear on Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D.com. I highly recommend reading it. But he describes what he learned from the CIA and applied it to business. And I get as many stories as I can out of him along the way. So here's Mike Baker. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Mike, first off, what did you do for the CIA? Um, yeah, I was I parked cars. I was a valet. No, I was in the operations group. And the, the, the agency is divided into various directorates or elements. And, you know, one is the operations, one's uh, science and technology, one's administrative, one's intelligence, you know, which is where all the smart people sit and write reports and take all the field intelligence and make sense of it. So uh, I was in the operation side of things for uh, going on two decades and then got out and went to private business. Well, what does the operation side mean? That's a good question, actually. I always assumed that was self-explanatory, but now that I think about it, if you're from outside that circle, then yeah, you're right. It needs a little clarification. Operation just means you're, you know, you've got case officers, you've got our paramilitary service uh, within the operations group. You've got the people who from a general public's perspective, if you think about beach books or big, you know, films, whatever, the operations people are what those general public would think of as spies, right? Even though that's not by definition really true. Spies are people that you recruit overseas to provide you with intelligence, right? So the operations group typically refer to personnel as staff or officers or whatever you want to call them. But that's where you carry out all the various operations designed to collect information, accomplish whatever the task is as set by the current administration. And in your two decades there, do you feel the, the CIA was getting better at recruiting people in foreign countries to give us information? Or, or did we sort of start to lapse? You know, so 20 years ago was 9-11. We realized how yeah. weak our intelligence services had become in some sense. 
Have we gotten better or is it harder now to recruit people overseas to basically betray their countries and tell us secrets? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's always it's always a heavy lift. Look, I mean, you know, the, the, the bottom line is no matter whether you're talking about, you know, uh, when the agency first got started, you know, coming into World War II, basically, as a Office of Strategic Services or what are we talking about? You know, George Washington. Look, George Washington, you know, uh, understood the value of, of espionage, right? And he knew intelligence was key to allowing them to reach victory eventually. And it is, you know, second oldest profession, I guess. It's always been a heavy lift to try to recruit somebody to, uh, as you say, you know, betray their country, betray their organization, to provide intelligence that will, you know, maintain our national security interests. It kind of ebbs and flows depending on the environment, specific concerns. The agency has taken hits over the years or has focused on other ways of collecting intelligence. And so sometimes that can make matters a little bit more difficult. So going into 9-11, as you pointed out, part of the problem was for some years before 9-11, we had been focusing more and more on, you could argue, technical collection, signals intelligence and less on human intelligence. So our cadre of officers, the people who go out in the world, often into hostile and challenging environments and have to actually do the heavy lift of recruiting or gathering intelligence from whatever source, that cadre had been shrinking. You know, so that, you could argue, was a real problem and it was identified as a problem after 9-11. You know, when they said, look, we've got to ramp this up, we've got to you know, refocus. We have to understand because no matter what you're collecting from a technical perspective, you still need somebody who is standing inside that tent or in that cave or wherever and can tell you and put all that technical collection into context. Right? You're never going to be able to replace a human source. But there have been moments in time with the Church Commission, um, you know, the end of the Cold War, you know, there was serious talk in Washington about dismantling the CIA because we don't need it anymore. We've got a peace dividend because the wall had fallen. So there's always these moments where, you know, it gets out of whack a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're never going to shift me off the position. The U.S. has the best uh, intel organizations, in, including the CIA, uh, in the world. And I know this is probably a little bit more niche, but like, let's say compared with the Mossad or, you know, Israeli intelligence, which, you know, on a daily basis, they're worried about their country being invaded and so on. Right. That's a, that's a good way of, of, and you have to. I know it sounds strange, but you benchmark yourself just like a private company does against others in your in your sector, you know, and you do always need to kind of say, hey, are we particularly with the hostile elements, right? So you have to always understand what the Russians are up to, what the Chinese regime is up to, and what the Iranians are doing, whomever it is in particular. But yeah, when you, you know, pound for pound, Mossad's great, don't get me wrong. And there are other excellent, you know, allied liaison intel services out there terrific ones. And thank goodness that they are and that we partner together. But I just have, I mean, I'm biased. I'm, I'm subjective. Yeah. yeah. But the CIA is outstanding. Well, and I'm curious, like the CIA to me always sounds exciting. Like I see behind you, you know, you have a, a poster from the Bourne Ultimatum that kind of like underlines a little bit the excitement of the public fascination with it. Why did you decide initially to enter the CIA? Um, it kind of backed into it. It's not like I was a teenager and thinking, but you know, when I get older, I really want to join the CIA. You weren't? Um, Cause I would think no. like I was. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wanted to be an astronaut. Like everybody else of my age, uh, at that point, yeah. we're all going to go to the moon. 
yeah, it wasn't necessarily something I was thinking about. It just happened that I was a good fit and, you know, ended up there. And so it worked out happily. Did they call you? Like, did they recruit you or did you apply? No, I drew, I, I drew that, uh, pig, uh, you know, Winky the Clown on, you know, on the back of a comic and sent it in and they said, yeah, you're in. Um, you qualified. <laughs> I qualified. You have the IQ yeah, level, uh, certainly. That's a cultural pull. People will never realize what that means anymore because nobody reads comic books and they don't remember how you can draw the little thing. Anyway, long story. Uh, but no, it was, uh, it, you know, it's, it, it was a long story, but again, a happy one. And then I ended up, you know, where I think I was meant to be. And like a lot of it, you were mentioning, you know, the stuff about recruiting so-called spies in other countries. I will make the leap, but you make this connection very well in your book. This is highly related to motivation and understanding what keeps people motivated, what keeps people producing results for you. It's not just money. It's not just, you know, a story about, oh, this is going to be exciting for you. Like there's lots of elements that go into, let's say, recruiting a spy and then having them be loyal to you and then having them be productive. And like, yeah. how would someone go about recruiting a spy? And then I'll relate that to business or we can, we can relate that to business. The two are uniquely similar in a way because you're still talking about humans and you're talking about motivation and there's not much new under the sun when it comes to that. Not to be overly simplistic here, but if you're good with people, if you're good at reading people, if you're good at, and, and most people aren't, most people don't listen all that well. But everybody thinks they are. Well, everybody thinks they do, right? Everybody yeah. says, ah, you know what? I'm a, I'm a hell of a listener. But the reality is most people are in a conversation. They're not really listening. They're thinking about what they want to say next, right? Um, and Or they're looking over the person's shoulder to see if there was somebody more important they should be talking to. We've all met people like that. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you're curious, that's, that's again, I'm, I'm just listing the things that I guess you could say would make a good uh, intelligence person, but would also make a good business person, uh, you know, particularly a good, you know, salesperson. I don't want to, again, I don't want to oversimplify this or cheapen it or any way, but you know, both are important. And so it's, uh, you know, are you, are you curious? Uh, are you genuinely interested in people? Um, do you read people? Well, are you empathetic? You know, which sounds odd when you're talking about somebody in the, in the Intel business, you know, because again, beach books and films make these people, you know, typically, you know, if the, the guy that rolls in from the CIA in a film, you know, usually the audience assumes he's going to be an asshole, right? So, uh, but the reality is you need people who are empathetic um, and who can, in a sense, mirror the values of the other person they're dealing with, right? You're, you're always looking to mirror in some way to kind of hook that person, get them interested. So there's certain, there's just certain commonalities between that and what I found once I went into business and without any business experience and suddenly realized, you know, I, I needed to I needed to do something. And all the only skill sets I had were what I developed with the outfit. And happily, they were transferable, which is what ended up being this book. And what's a time when someone failed through mistakes that they made in, let's say, converting someone into a spy or, or you know, motivating an, an intelligence asset that you had. Like, what's a mistake that happened, and and the result of that? Yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't ever talk about specifics because I don't, you know, I've got sure. got a hell of a lot of respect for for my old colleagues and my old outfit, and I've got a good relationship. And one of those reasons I think is because I I never veer off into specific stories, sources, methods, anything along those lines. It's just to me, it doesn't make sense, but. I will say that there are many, many opportunities to 
misread somebody's intent or to not find any point of leverage with an individual that you may be talking to. But it's the same thing. I mean, think about it. Think about how many people go to conferences or you know events, business events to network, right? And the reality is there's not that many people, I think, that genuinely enjoy that process. But everyone understands it's important because that's how you hopefully drive business you know, to your organization. But you know, the likelihood is that you don't make those connections. You're, you're, people are struggling to find some common ground or they're hoping to find some hook or whatever it may be. Um, and that's a, that's a tough thing if you don't genuinely enjoy dealing with people. You walk into a room full of people. So, you know, again, I'm not going to go into any specifics about some time when it went really famously bad, but let me just point out. What about your own experience, though? For it to go bad. It's a very heavy lift to do within the Intel world to develop and recruit somebody. It's very difficult. With your own experience, what was something where maybe, and you don't have to get into specifics, but maybe you could have done something a little bit better and, or you could have noticed something that you could have taken advantage of a little bit more, but, but didn't. Well, you can always have better information, right? You can always, you can always have more information about somebody's motivations and plans and intentions and, you know, and, and weaknesses and all, all these things. The reality is you rarely get all the information that you want. Right? And that's another point that I took away from the, the, the agency. Look, the book company rules, there's no, you know, there's no set list of company rules out there. It's not like you go in for your first day of training and they give you the company rules. My point in writing the book was like, these are some of the ideas that somehow were embedded with me, got deep into my system. And when I went into private business, I found that, oh, without knowing it, I had absorbed these ideas and they ended up being, as far as I'm concerned, the reason why I was able to build and drive a business forward and keep it breathing, when in reality, I had no experience to do that. There was no reason why I should have been necessarily successful, but it was that some of those ideas that I walked away with you know, somebody who was there at the same time or any other time or someone who's working there now, you know, they may have a completely different set of company rules. That's just the way that, you know, human nature. And when your private business essentially was like, almost like a private mini intelligence agency, like what type of clients did you have? What, uh, what types of employees did you have? What did you need? Who did you need to recruit? Yeah, well, we had, I mean, <laughs> we, had no, we had nobody. Look, I started it with a good buddy of mine. I mean, I was very fortunate. I talk about this in the book a little bit. I, I got out of the, the agency with no idea what was going to happen. And by happenstance, I knew I wanted to get into business, start a business, hopefully. But by happenstance, a, a very good friend of mine tipped me off to a, a very successful fraud investigator who was living in London. He was kind enough to hire both me and my buddy at the same time. And my friend came out of the British teams and we had known each other and were good friends and, and uh, very like-minded. So we ended up working for, for Mike Comer, who's sadly deceased now, um, at his very large startup. And that gave us the ability to understand the business that we wanted to go into, right? And, but at that, when we got out, I'm, look, I had no, you know, no, no training, no experience in the world of private business or private fraud investigations. Um, whatever that may be, but I knew the value of intelligence. I knew the value of information. And so and what's I the, knew the value of being creative in finding that information? So 
Right, and so that 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 that, that helps. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but that helps you bridge sure. the gap between public and private. Like, so what was the difference in investigating a fraud as a private investigator versus public? Public, you can make the call; they have to listen to you more or less. Private, you have yeah. to be a little bit more creative, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, you don't have the weight of the government behind you. You know, you don't have a big machine churning out resources. Uh, you have to do it all yourself. I mean, it was a learning curve to some degree. It was an obvious fact, but it was a learning curve still. And, you know, one of the principles or one of the rules is, is know your operating environment, right? So what that means essentially is for the private sector, it's like you've got to know what you, where you're dealing, what, what are you doing in this jurisdiction? I walk into a jurisdiction, I go into to, to Russia, and I can gather information in a completely different way than I can here in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in other parts. So, you know, so every jurisdiction has certain parameters for how you can do your business because it's essentially it's a global intelligence and security firm right that i run and at the heart of it is information that's that's why people pay us right they're paying us you know to have a little bit better information or a little bit better insight a little bit more transparency uh, than the competitors uh or to understand why a playing field is unlevel overseas you know what's the competition doing that's creating that unlevel playing field so it's you know, you have to you have to know your operating environment and what you're able to do appropriately, because you can't. You know, you 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 get south of regulations, right? You get you start pushing the envelope and get outside the envelope and start doing things you're not supposed to do. You're gonna get your knickers in a twist and things are gonna head sideways very quickly. Well, like okay, so what's an example of that happening? Like when you first started getting into fraud investigation, and then when you first were starting your business, obviously you have to gather intelligence and you have to operate in 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 different ways in different places. What's a story like mm. of a fraud you investigated that was tricky for you? A good example of this is, is overseas. Let's say the UK. Let's say London. Knowing your operating environment, you've identified that there's a company that is you know, engaged in questionable, possibly illegal activity. Like what? Uh, or or hey, it could be anything. It could be theft of economic information. It could be a fraud. You know, they could be getting insider information from, you know, personnel working within your company, whatever it may be. But the point being is that as an example, necessarily a direct answer, but it's an interesting story, is one of the th unique things you can do is you look and go, OK, well, there's the target building. We think this small company or whatever is, is engaged in some questionable illegal activity, whatever is a detrimental to our client. There's only a certain number of ways you can collect information. You can go through all the open source information, but are you really going to find any derogatory information through open source? Maybe, but maybe not. You can identify maybe former employees you can talk to. You can identify individuals who uh, are providing services, vendors there that can maybe talk to you uh, that perhaps will provide you with some insight. Uh, but as you pointed out, look, we're not working for the government, so you don't have the ability to walk in and say, hey, you got to talk to me. So one of the things you can do is you say, okay, maybe they're putting their trash out on the sidewalk, right? Which is a public space. Maybe it's worth, now I know this sounds inelegant and a lot of people in the industry don't like to talk about it. And it doesn't necessarily happen as much as it used to because most people, companies buy cross-cutting shredders. And that's a good tip, by the way. If, if you don't have a cross-cut shredder, get yourself one. Uh, or maybe but, if you have too many, you're up to something. <laughs> no. No, if you name an arena after your company or you buy a corporate jet, then you're probably up to something. Um, <laughs> but it's um, it, so it, the idea being is, look, I can I, I can go by and that's in public uh, turf. I can pick that bag of 
garbage up, I can take it back and dump it out and sift through it, see whether you're, you're tossing out any information of interest, you know, meeting minutes or spreadsheets or, or uh, account details of offshore entities, whatever it could be. And then as long as I bundle it all back up and, and drop it somewhere in that same postcode, I'm, you know, good as gold. But, but so, you know, a lot of companies now are all digital. Uh, like, how, how do you overcome that hurdle? You'd be surprised how many people still do things by paper. Humans tend to be fairly predictable in, in a certain way. And there's still the old potential for them to be printing material out to review it, tossing away things they shouldn't. So I, I'm not saying it's a one and done, it's a cure-all. But it's one of those ways that you have to, you have, again, knowing your operating environment, you have to know what's possible within the jurisdiction. Right? If you didn't know that was possible with the jurisdiction, we, we ended up doing that in one case, I talk about it in the book, where it was a gold mine, right? And we had kind of run through all the possible leads that we might go through. And then eventually we, you know, we, we uh, did the bins and we found out that they were doing it. Not elegant, right? It's not like we're, you know, but we're, we're trying to gather information on behalf of clients. We're trying to give them just a, enough of an edge and do it appropriately within the bounds of what you can do. Because a lot of times the information we gather, you know, is for the purposes of litigation somewhere down the road. So everything has to be done in an evidentially proper manner. And that re demands that you know what you're able to do in each jurisdiction. And again, going back to knowing your operating environment is one of the uh, company rules. And so like a client might be, for instance, a big semiconductor company, and they suspect this smaller semiconductor company has stolen their designs or something like that, and they're now making chips similar. Could that be like an example situation? Sure. Yeah. Theft of intellectual property is, is, is rampant out there, right? And it's most of the time it's, it's state-sponsored, and most of the time it's the Chinese regime, which specializes in this. They hoover up everything they get their hands on. Uh, but uh, whether you're you know, a semiconductor manufacturer or whether you're producing something that in your mind has, you know, would be of no interest to anybody, uh, there are people out there that would be interested in it, right? You, 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 you would be, and most people would be amazed at how aggressive that world is of economic espionage and theft of IP, of intellectual property, trade secret theft. It's astounding, right? And particularly, again, when you're talking about state sponsors. And, you know, the Chinese regime doesn't really care whether you're making semiconductors or whether you're, you know, putting together a new type of office chair. They feel like it's, uh, you know, possibly going to benefit one of their operations, their companies. Fine. They're going to hoover it up and they'll look at it and, you know, maybe they use it, maybe they don't. But And so let's say a client hires you and, and they're like, we think the Chinese are stealing our information. Where would you even start investigating and like what employees you had would you go to first and... Like, how would you plan out this investigation? Yeah, I mean, it's it, we don't we don't have enough time to walk through the whole process, but you know, you've got there's a myriad of of, of ways you have to look at. Is it an insider threat, for example, which is a you know has been an, an increasing and it's continuing to grow as a problem. Um, the insider threat issue, where you know, and it may be a completely external issue. It may be. You've just, you know, been the unfortunate victim of, of a cyber attack. You've got malware sitting on your system and you don't even know it. I mean, it's hundreds of days on average before people even realize they've been, you know, subjected to a, a cyber attack before they realize they've got a problem. So you have to start an investigation, any investigation, whether it's this or whether it's a fraud or whether, whatever it may be. You have to start 
very methodically, right? You know, and you don't start out with a thesis, right? It's not like I'm gonna, I've got a theory now. I'm going to write to prove that theory, right? You start at sort of. I'm not sure if I'm going to explain this well, but you start on, on uh, the ground floor and you build your investigation on solid material, on solid evidence, on solid facts, right? Because if you don't, if you're based on suppositions or assumptions, it's you're just building something on sand, and the investigation at some point is going to fall apart, uh, which could be very costly. So there's a, a process, and it, it usually starts with. Sometimes it starts with absolute happenstance where the company realizes there's a problem, right? In the world of intelligence, you know, for instance, if you have a counterintelligence problem, if you've got a mole within your organization, sometimes you don't, you don't realize it until your assets start disappearing, right? Uh, which happened with uh, a variety, Aldrich James or Robert Hansen or whatever. You start, you know, uh, human assets start disappearing right? because the, the, the hostile country uh, that has developed as mole is getting information that points to these assets working against them. That's pretty clear evidence. When you're the subject of a fraud or a cyber attack, it can take a, a significant amount of time before you, you realize it, depending on how sophisticated it is and how good your defenses are. So there's two parts to this. There's an offensive effort to try to understand whether you're being victimized. And there's a defensive effort to harden your systems and to do things within your company, whether it's about your personnel and and your due diligence in hiring, your HR program for assessing individuals, the way that you deal with them, or your IT system. So there's, there's a lot to it. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when 
you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. There's an example in the book where a client thought that one of their top level executives was not only going to be leaving the company, but also take significant assets with them. And mm -hmm. then you had to, you had to kind of be creative. Again, you're not the CIA, you're a private intelligence firm. You pretended you were an investment analyst, figured out one day when they were traveling. So you go to the, the airport and you say to the person behind the ticket counter, Hey, I think an old colleague of mine is on this plane. I wanted to surprise them. Can you give me a ticket sitting next to them? And again, you're pretending to be an investment analyst. Tell that story. Like what happened in that story? Yeah, that, was, that was back in the day when you could you could uh, blog your way through uh, you know through ticket agents and others before 9-11 and, and shortly thereafter. But um, yeah, the idea was look, you know, we we think or the company that came to us felt as if they had a essentially an insider threat, right? They had senior executive or executives that were looking to go outside of the business, set up their own shop, and you know take proprietary information with them that would uh, damage the client's business. And, and, and so, you know, they came to us and they, they had a suspicion, right? They had, they kind of had conversations and they were, but they didn't have anything really solid. So, you know, we, uh, we looked at it and you do, you do some certain, you do basic things first, right? So you do a lot of digging, you do profiling of the individuals involved. You look to see whether they've got financial difficulties, you know, are they, you know, have they had any criminal charges? You do all the basic due diligence on them. You develop a picture of who the person is, but oftentimes then you've got to go to the next step, right? You've actually got to, you know, talk to humans. You got to talk to sources. You got to find people who may have worked with them. 
understand what their morals are like, are their ethics. And long story short, we were advised by the client company because the persons were still working for them that they were going to travel on a certain day. Uh, over, it was, this was all overseas in Europe. And uh, so, as you said, showed up at the airport and, and uh, said, hey, you know, you know, I think buddy of mine's, you know, sitting there. And can you tell me what seat is, is? Is it available? I'd love to surprise him. You know, ah, okay, fine. But you set your, your, your own situation, right? I went there early, early morning hours when I knew it wasn't going to be busy. And I knew that the, you know, whoever I ended up talking to was going to have time and it was going to be quiet. And sure enough, got sat next to them and put my supposed assistant behind me who was uh, also working with me. And she was sat behind me so that I could kind of turn and get in the guy's face to talk to my assistant and sound really big and important. Like I've got a lot of leather bound books in my office. And, and so you know, they took the hook after a while. They started talking to me and it's always better if people start talking to you right? Let them have that conversation. Let them kind of guide the conversation. Let them get into what they do, right? And sure, and people want to, right? If you if you give people the opportunity, they'll bang on. I mean, look at me right now. I'm banging on about myself. People love to talk about themselves. So got the guy, he's uh, started into a conversation and uh, spent he spent all his time talking not about his company, but about some ideas he had about business. Right? And so that, you know, clearly we we're on the right path. Eventually set a meeting. He contacted me. Once again, I didn't reach out to him. He contacted me because he Like you offered was, him a ride to the hotel? And yeah, I gave him a ride. There. We had, I, again, had somebody stationed as a car, supposedly as my private driver. And, you know, he was a guy that worked with us in the uh, fraud company. And, you know, that way we found out specifically where the guy was staying. And, and, um, but he reached back out thinking I was an investor and I was looking for opportunities and he wanted to pitch this whole idea he had. So he basically showed up the next morning and we wired up and, you know, the, the place because you can do a one party transaction. Again, know your operating environment. We knew we could talk, you know, we could record something one on one, even though, you know, it wasn't just one on one. Showed up the next morning, basically pitched his entire business plan, brought in an associate that, that we didn't know about. And uh, yeah, it all had a happy ending as far as the client was concerned. In that meeting where he's pitching you, is he using proprietary information from the client? Yeah, yeah, he was showing a lot. He was showing a lot of detail. It was, uh, it was, and 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 it was funny because his associate was like, he was more cautious, right? He was, uh, he, he was saying things to this the the senior guy is like, like, how do we we don't we don't even know these people? How do we how do we trust them? And the guy, and, and <laughs> it was. It was very funny uh, in its own way. But anyhow. Well, what, happened, what happened to that guy? Like, where is he now? No. I, you know what? I honestly have no idea. I don't care. No idea. Um, but did the client, it, though, uh, like fire him or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, you know, and overseas in Europe, yeah, and, and it had to be, it had to be very well documented. It had to be done properly because, you know, labor laws being what they are in Europe, you know, you have to be very careful about how you let employees go, even senior employees. And so, um, again, that's everything has to be well thought through. Right. It's it's like with this with the spy business with with, you know, there, there tends to be again in sort of fiction and movies. Oftentimes it'll be like this haphazard. Well, we're just going to do this. Right. We're just going to see what happens. You know, like everybody's you know a bunch of cowboys and there's no risk calculation that goes on. And that's not true. There's a constant risk versus gain calculation that goes on within the intel community here in the U.S. And I was involved in far more uh, operations that didn't get approved than did. 
because they looked at it and they go, no, we can't do this. No, we shouldn't do that. No, that's not going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, doable, allowable, whatever. And you do the same in private business. You're always doing this risk versus gain calculation ahead of, of any activity. And I like the rule, uh, get off your ex. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a rule from the CIA, but also a rule that encouraged you to act decisively and start your own business. That's easy to say in retrospect. Oh, I started this business because I was getting off, you know, I was, I was, act, I was making acting. A, I was just making a decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like at the time when you were sort of trying to decide, was that rule, did that push you forward? Like, you know, what happened? Well, I mean, again, it's, it's not like I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't like open up my, you know, my, my uh, CIA handbook to the section that marked company rules. But it gets ingrained, at least again, for me, it, it got ingrained in me that what you have to do and get off the X essentially means you got to make a decision, right? And, you know, it's, a, it's an old ambush term uh, as well. You know, you don't want to be on the X, the X being the, the ambush site. And that's a bad place to be. And so you, you, you need to understand how to move off of that, right? We've got a security services division. and We spend a lot of time in private and public sectors dealing with issues like this where you have to understand when you're about to move into a bad situation. And when you do, if you get into it, if you get on the X as an example, if you get caught by surprise, if you're on the street walking around with your AirPods in and you're staring at your phone and next thing you know, you got a gun in your face, right? And someone's robbing you, you're going to shut down, right? Unless you're, you know, Chuck Norris who would never shut down. Right. Um, but you know, because you're not aware of your operating environment and you're not paying attention. You, and, and so everything starts to lock up. But in, in a business sense, it also means uh, learn how to make decisions with less than perfect information because you're never going to get all the information you want. And right? if you sit around waiting, whether you're talking about an investment, I'm going to say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my investment analysts, you know, spend months, you know, researching this potential investment. You know what? Someone else is going to take advantage of the opportunity. Right. So because you spend all your time hoping to get to that happy day when you've got all the information you want to be comfortable. And rarely does that happen. So you have to learn at what point do you have to make a decision. And so I think that was, that was something that, you know, I, at least I felt got ingrained in me through my time in the, in the outfit. And it certainly helped because, you know, when we started our own business, you know, after we had the blessing of working with Mike Comer for a while to understand what the business looks like, we didn't have any money, right? We weren't making any money to speak of. And, and you know, my old buddy, Nick and I, we, we just sort of like, let's do it. And luckily he was, he had the same risk appetite and, and, you know, came from similar background from over in the UK. And so it worked out very well. What was your, what was your first client? Like, like who first hired you? <laughs> well, we spent a lot of days sitting around, uh, looking at each other in, in a pokey little walk-up office. It was the only thing we could afford. Basically, just spending the day, you know, uh, buying each other coffees and, and wondering whether we were going to get any clients and, and whether we, you know, made a mistake or not. Were you scared and, uh, personally? No, 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 no. Because, you know, uh, it was too exciting to be scared. It's too much fun, right? Mike Comer, who was, again, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest fraud investigators who ever lived, he used to tell me all the time, and he made a lot of money. He did very well. He had, when I joined the startup that he had started, where he hired me and my, uh, you know, eventual business partner. You know, it was a big startup, but he had made a lot of money from selling his previous company. But he used to tell me all the time, we'd go, you know, get in this car, we'd be going to a meeting or whatever. And 
And he'd say, gosh, damn it. He said, the, the best fun I ever had was when it was just me in a filing cabinet. Now it's just, you know, getting started. And he, you know, I used to think, okay, well, that's, it's easy to say because you got, you know, you got it, you made a big packet of money already, but he's absolutely true. So no, those days when we were just sitting there wondering whether we we're going to get a client, it was so fun. We made each other laugh constantly and uh, it was very entertaining, but we got lucky. Every operation I ever worked in with the agency had an element of luck. And so we got fortunate with, with, you know, our first client, someone who called us, who knew us, who knew that we'd gotten out and were trying to start a business. And they thought it was, I think, very humorous that we were doing that. And, uh, but they were kind enough to recommend a uh, consortium. It was a bunch of bankers and they were in town, they were in London and they had an issue. They had some, problems that they were trying to sort out and our friend uh was kind enough to say well you know i know some guys just got out of you know government basically and you know might be able to help you and so he said would you be interested and i said well yeah i think we're interested because we got nothing going on and we certainly have time in our day to meet with them and once again you know, we've tried to be creative right we went we said okay if they come walking up to this office there really wasn't much in there they're not going to be all that impressed. So we, we took a few liberties, right. And, and, uh, put a whiteboard up on the wall and wrote down all the projects we were working on, which was complete bullshit. And, uh, you know, it was suddenly the desks were stacked with, you know, file folders and uh, <laughs> bought a lot of empty paper and blank paper. And, and, uh, we asked the receptionist who was a shared receptionist for all the office suites. And we were just in one of those pokey little rental office suites you know, we had her all trained up. So when these bankers walked in, that she was trained to say, are you the gentleman from Microsoft? And um, that we felt would be very impressive to them <laughs> in our own simple-minded way. And then she called our phones every couple of minutes while they were in there with us talking. So we were clearly busy and might not be able to take their case. And so uh, at the end of it all, it worked. And they... <laughs> They hired us and thank God we did the right thing for them and got the job done. And uh, they were very satisfied. So it worked out if it had gone the other way, that might've been our last case and you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. And th this was related, was this related to the mining company? Like where you go, th where you went through the bins? No, that was a separate business. That was a separate, separate uh, the case. Cause that so. was a, a fascinating one also where you say to the cleaning crew, Hey, I, my wife works in this building. I'm afraid she's cheating on me. And then the guy instantly, like, you, you were relatable. And the guy said, yeah, sure. I would hope someone would do that for me. And you, yeah. you were able Next thing you know, he was, he was all, he had, all he had to do, all he needed to do was a big building and lots of bins, right? Lots of, lots of garbage bags coming out of that building. Again, it's, I realize this doesn't sound all that elegant. Um, and, but all we needed to do was to separate the bags on the sidewalk just enough so that we didn't have to, like, scoop up dozens and dozens of garbage bags that we could just get the ones that we knew were coming out of this office for this entity that we were we were uh, targeting that we were looking at that was engaged in some shenanigans and uh and it worked out it worked out great the one thing we did find it was the dead of summer right in london and places don't have any air conditioning obviously you know little offices that we had certainly didn't have air conditioning so we were stuffing all this garbage in there and going through it but it was we were collecting it faster than we could sift through it and so we had just bags of garbage you know sitting in there and and it, oh my God, did it stink. And so that was, that was another lesson. I didn't, I didn't include that as a company rule. Don't put, you know, hot garbage in your, you know, unair conditioned offices, but 
everybody should be aware of that anyhow. You know, you have one one of the company rules is immediately admit your mistakes. Was there a time where you had to go to the client or even when you were at the CEI, was there a time mm-hmm. when that stands out for you where you had to admit your mistake and that helped propel you forward? Yeah, I think definitely with, look, the reason why it's important with the agency is because you're in the intelligence business, right? And there's opportunity there. If you, if you, if you lie, if you're covering up mistakes or, or problems, you're compromised, right? And, and you can't have personnel working within the intelligence community who are compromised. It's too dangerous, right? Because they're targets for hostile services. So that's why it's so critically important within the agency that if you make a mistake, just admit it, right? And I was very fortunate. I was very lucky with the people who I worked for and with. And, you know, some of the first advice I got when I showed up there overseas was, you know, you make a mistake, you know, come to me, tell me, we'll sort it out. You know, by God, they did. And can, so, you, can you say what, what, what a, uh, or even broadly, like what a sample mistake you made was overseas? No, I <laughs> cannot. Because I think most people would be stunned to know that I would even make a mistake. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I, guess, I know I was stoked. And so, uh, but, but the point is, is it, it's, that's a clear, and, and, and you know what, and you need it. Again, it's transferable, it, 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 you know, which is the whole point of this book is it makes perfect sense in business. There, there, I, you know, when you start investigating a fraud, uh, there's a couple of realities. A, the first time you see a fraud, it's usually not the first time this person's have committed a fraud, right? It's yeah. rarely that first moment where they've decided to do a fraud. And oftentimes, when you're doing a, a, an investigation, when you get down to the core of it, when you, you know, reverse engineer it, you figure out what's going on, what's happened, who's been involved, what it, oftentimes it's that first mistake, right? You know, an accountant, you know, makes an error and then, okay, I've got to cover it up. A trader makes a bad trade and tries to cover it up. It's, it's not necessarily, I mean, sometimes fraudsters are just doing it because that's what they do, right? They're going to fraud. Uh, but sometimes these big cases or the, these problems develop because someone, not because they wanted to be nefarious at the outset, they made a mistake. And their mistake was after they hit it, they didn't admit it. Walk in and say, I, shit, I made a bad trade. Now, you know what? You know, maybe you get fired. You know, maybe you get reprimanded. But you keep doing going down that road, and you're going to end up in jail at some point. So, you know, it's always better to admit your mistakes uh, right up front. It, it protects the person. It protects the company. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Another rule you have is reward excellence. I think that's, I don't want to say it's an obvious rule, but that's an important one where the part where it's unobvious is always giving credit to others benefits the person giving the credit the most is the way I feel. And that's what that rule sort of speaks to. And I I imagine it must be particularly true in intelligence where a lot of things are just secret. So it's good to let people know their excellence is is not a secret to you and it's appreciated. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you know what? And, and to be fair, nobody works in the agency or in the intelligence community. And, and frankly, in, in within law enforcement, for the most part, nobody works there to get a pat on the back. Right. And if what you're, you know, what motivates you is pats on the back, then you probably should get a different job. But, you know, what is important is uh, recognizing excellence, you know, setting and you have to define what it means. Right. So you have to, you have to set the bar where it needs to be. Right. It's not. It's not I'm setting the bar at a, at a mediocre performance and everything above that is excellent. Right? You gotta you gotta have fairly you know high standards, demanding standards, and then recognize when people are going over that bar. But you're absolutely right. You know the key, and it, it, it that does sound simple, but you know it, it doesn't happen as often as you'd hope. The key is to reward people, recognize people, and you know give them the credit, right? You know, the reason why we have a successful business is we've got great people. We hired fantastic people, certainly smarter than I am. And you explain the mission. uh, You hire good people. You get out of the way. You let them do the work. You give them the credit. And clients, and we've got client relationships now going on, frankly, on two decades for some of them, which tells you how old I am at this stage of the game. And they keep coming back because our people do such good work. Right. They don't come back because I'm a fun guy to hang out with, although I am. <laughs> and how much now is like cybersecurity? Like you must have a, a, a cybersecurity component of what you do. Like what, what, how, how much has that affected the business? I think it's like all technology, right? It, it changes the game to some degree, right? You're still talking about there's an upside and a downside to it. So the cybersecurity portion of it, it's become kind of a buzzword. It's where a lot of money goes nowadays, and and, and rightly so, because you know the weaknesses in a lot of systems are are you know uh, vulnerable, given you know, what goes on in cyberspace. But at the end of the day, it's it's part and parcel of the same process, which is how do you provide information? How do you defend against you know outside threats? Uh, how do you create transparency? You're doing the same things. Technology just kind of shifts the parameters somewhat or creates a requirement for new uh, understanding or education or new services. So I wouldn't call, you know, the, the cybersecurity services necessarily a game changer. It's another service line. It's another add-on, right, that you have to be aware of, be capable of, of, of handling because, you know, it's, it's uh, ransomware, you know, um, extortion attacks. It's a daily event. I mean, the, 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 the shit that goes on in cyberspace now aggressively, both by individual actors, by, you know, uh, state sponsored actors, but whomever, you know, they're not just attacking the semiconductors, they're attacking everybody. What's an example experience where you had to deal with like a cybersecurity threat or like ransomware or extortion? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, close to home, a very good friend who runs a successful medium sized business that he's built from the ground up. Right. It's a fairly technical business. You know, I saw him one day, and you know, it was about a year ago, and he looked he looked like shit. He looked terrible. And, and I said, what's going on? And he says, oh, God, their systems got locked up, right? Everything got froze. And, and the next thing you know, they get a message, and, you know, for, you know, whatever, 
you know, $30 million, you can have your data back. And this is a company that's sitting out here in Idaho, right? Not, not bothering anybody. And they're like, they're like, what? They had no, you know, no way of understanding how to deal with this problem. And this is, again, this, it, it attacks everybody. Everyone's in the crosshairs for the most part, right? It's, it's like, it's like, again, going back to that, that comment about what the Chinese regime does. They're not just going after top companies like Raytheon or whatever it may be, you know, with, with handling government defense secrets, right? They're going after everyone. So, you know, we had to work with them. You know, we, we, fortunately, we had some contacts within the bureau. We were able to hook them up. The bureau, the FBI does a very good job. They've gotten a big kick in the ass over the recent past, you know, and, and everybody's going after the FBI. They do some amazing work. And so we hook them up so that they can have that interaction, right? And the FBI can work with them in terms of, you know, best practices and, and, and what they need to do next. And then we, you know, provided some assistance in terms of understanding where the, you know, the attack may have come from, uh, who may have been involved, and how to handle the negotiation, right, to get this down. Because at the end of the day, I think people would be amazed at how small those actual paid out ransoms are. And, you know, the, the range, $12,000, you know, suddenly you're, you know, your first demand is 30 million. And then next thing you know, you're paying out 300,000, you know, so there's a process to it. You mean, you mean, you mean you can negotiate down? Yeah. 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 Well, like Never. in this case, did they pay or did the FBI, were they able to find the, the culprit? No, it's, it's, uh, it, it, you know, typically, and that's why it's so rampant, you know, it's very difficult to, without a, a massive level of resource, right? Uh, it's very difficult to track these types of attacks back to specific individuals and get your hands on them or get, you know, actually accomplish what you want to do, which is, which is reach out and touch them. It's very tough to do that. So, you know, a lot of these get settled and the data gets unlocked for, you know, smaller amounts than you would think, but it happens over and over and over again, right? So they're doing a volume game here. How does the ransom get paid? Because obviously if it's paid through a bank account, you could just call up the bank and say, who was that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And if it's paid it's through big, crypto... You know, it's, it's crypto, yeah. I but mean, you, see on, you see on the blockchain when money goes out of that block. I mean, I guess there's ways to launder it out of the, the blockchain, oh, yeah. but yeah. it's the, probably not that easy to collect the money. Uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's... It's a process, but it's easier than you think. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be so rampant. And, you know, it's one of those reasons why, you know, um, there's still talk, constant talk about, you know, how do you regulate the, the crypto world? Something like with Sam Bankman-Fried, I think one, one of the lessons from that will be, all right, you know what, maybe you do actually need a little bit of regulation. Yeah. Right? You, can't, you can't have a, a, an unregulated world um, that has lent itself in part, not, not obviously there's a lot of good people that are just trying to use it because they believe in it, but there's a lot of you know, criminal elements that also have taken advantage of this. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other problems. There's, you know, wash trades that take place within the crypto world. And how much is that jacked up prices for, you know, some of these operations? So I think it's, you know, it's bound to happen. There will be some regulation coming in. You know, it's not a bad thing. Right? I, I, I get why this whole idea of like, we want this freewheeling, unregulated world. Hopefully the SBF situation will teach people that, you know, some regulation is not a bad thing. Yeah, and and, to and be honest, also, I, and also, and also, due diligence is not a bad thing. All anybody had to do was some serious due diligence on Sam Bankman-Fried, and they would have stayed well away. 
but no. Yeah, like what 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 would you have done to do due diligence? Like how would you have approached that one? Well, you start you start with the basics, right? You look at you look at the individual. So you build a profile of the individual, and you look at everything from his his uh, activities and associations, who's he hang out with, his financial status, where is he living, what's he doing with his time, his lifestyle, behavior. You know, then you start looking at. His, I mean, look, he. <laughs> Spent what 135 million dollars in naming the FTX arena down in Miami. Uh, again, there are certain fraud indicators that have always surfaced. Uh, I, I mentioned corporate jet; that's always one. You know, take a look at that. I'm not talking about GE or Pfizer or whatever running corporate jets. That's to be expected and that's legit. But when you've got a company that just kind of floats out of nowhere, right? The next thing you know, they're they're naming a freaking NBA arena. You know, you might want to step back and think about this. But what happens is typically. They, you know, and they were doing things for a very specific reason. Right? They were getting celebrity endorsements because that promotes further business. People look and go, well, if it's good enough for Tom Brady, shit, it's good enough for me. Right. And, you know, people are afraid to miss the boat. And that's a big part of it. It's not necessarily greed. They just, there's this human thing is, I don't want to miss this opportunity. Look at all these other people jumping on here. Right. So I'm on it. I'm not. And, and they, they just set aside common sense, which is what the hell am I investing in? But you see it with financial institutions. I'm not just talking about small investors putting money into all their savings into, into FTX or whatever it may be. That I'm talking about financial institutions and big companies that oftentimes fail to do just the basic due diligence prior to a key hire or a, a, an important investment or venture of some sort, just because, you know, what the hell? Maybe they think they know the market better or they know the players better. Or whatever. Do your due diligence. It's going it, to, it, it costs you far less than a fraud investigation at the back end. It's just it's just a fact of the matter. And if somebody had done some, if they bothered to do their due diligence on Sam Bankman-Fried, I guarantee you, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have been hurt. And you know, you, you, you've mentioned the, the Chinese a couple of times and it's clear they're doing anything they can to get intellectual IP from America and, and more. Like we don't know all the ways in which they've encroached into American life. Why isn't, the government more adamant about fighting this, although maybe they are and just not telling us. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, there's a lot that goes on off the radar that you don't see. Um, what there hadn't been for years and years and years was any real serious open discussion about the extent to which the Chinese regime, um, you know, engages in economic espionage and trade theft secrets and, and what the Chinese Ministry of State Security and all their cronies engage in overseas against us, our allies, you know, pick a target. And so it wasn't discussed. And there was always this, this constant, you know, effort to try to, you know, imagine that China was moving towards a, a, a you know, a democratic future and, you know, they're opening up. And, and part of it is also, you know, businesses always view the Chinese market as the Holy grail, right? So they're willing to overlook things. Apple's willing to, you know, do certain things there that, uh, when you start to understand how they, you know, uh, acquiesced to demands from the Chinese regime, it, it's it, it's pretty bizarre, but it's because they don't want to miss the market, right? It's like someone not wanting to miss an opportunity to invest in Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, companies not wanting to lose the potential for having that Chinese market. So, and the, and the Chinese regime uses that as, as leverage, as, as, you know, they know that's motivation. So it's, it's but recently there has been more talk about it which is a very good thing and you know like trump or hate trump doesn't matter to me uh, at least during his administration there was 
more open discussion about the damage that the Chinese regime does. Uh, and I think the current administration, the Biden administration, is you know carrying through with that as well. Um, you know, their recent policy positions have, have been pretty, pretty adamant about trying to get, you know, uh, a change in behavior from the Chinese regime. So we'll see where it goes. I mean, what do you think are the biggest intelligence related threats to the United States or to the world right now? Well, I think if, if, if you sat down and said, what do we watch in 2023? You'd probably, one of the biggest concerns always is the potential for a serious attack on U.S. infrastructure, right? The power systems, water systems, financial systems, whatever it may be, particularly through cyberspace now, the potential there is significant, in part with the power because the power grid is so shaky, right? It's patched together like a big quilt and it's not particularly well done. And it was never designed to withstand any serious attacks. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, you look at the probing that goes on, you know, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, whomever is uh, you know, not aligned with our interests. There's constant daily probing of all our major infrastructure elements. And the reason they've been doing that is because they're mapping them out and developing scenarios and playbooks, right, for that unfortunate day, if it ever comes, where, you know, we're suddenly in a major conflict, then they'll open the playbook and they'll know exactly where to start pushing the buttons and where, what to go after. So it's that's a, a serious threat. That's a real problem. Uh, you know, and then it's the usual ones. They don't really change much over the years. It's it's China, you know, and, and the potential for a cross-strait problem with Taiwan and that dragging in the region and the U.S. into a conflict. There's their, you know, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea is ongoing. What do you think will happen if, if China invades Taiwan? Well, first off, there's a theory that maybe they'll infiltrate at a high level Taiwan, you know, mm -hmm. through intelligence and that some general or high official in Taiwan will ask China to invade. So there's that scenario. But let's mm -hmm. say just China directly invades Taiwan. What do you think the U.S. reaction would be? Well, you have to ask yourself, do you, do you think that the U.S. would put boots on the ground to defend Taiwan? And I, I think the answer is probably no. And I think more importantly, I think the Chinese regime has decided probably no. And when, you know, they've been watching the Russia-Ukraine situation very closely. So I think our response would be somewhat in, a, in alignment with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Right? We would kind of get up to that line, but not cross it, where our own personnel are in direct conflict. I just think there's probably a hard stop there. But we would, and we're, you know, I think there's, a, there's an effort to increase the aid already that's going out to Taiwan and, and has been for a period of time because of this concern over the, the increasing aggressiveness, you know, and the aggressive posture towards Taiwan. Look, we've, with Russia and Ukraine, we put in over this past year, we put in what, about $50 billion in assistance? Yeah, maybe more. And about half of that is military. Yeah, I think there's a likelihood that the Taiwanese situation would look similar. So Mike Baker, author of Company Rules or Everything I Know About Business, I learned from the CIA, which is actually a great subtitle. Most subtitles I really don't like. You know, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about all this. And to me, it's all fascinating. Let me ask you a question. Why do you have a poster of the Bourne Ultimatum uh, behind you? Like, is it because it's related to the CIA or is it just you like the Jason Bourne character? Like, what was the... Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. That's why I ask. It was a great Robert Ludlum book, too. So It was a great Robert Ludlum book. And I do, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because I like a lot of the Ludlum books, just like the Le Carre books. 
but uh, Matt Damon signed the poster. I got to put it up on the wall. Um, <laughs> I, I know a couple of the guys that worked on the, the films. And, uh, but I mean, right over there, I got uh, one of the other great spy movies, uh, Spies Like Us. <laughs> uh, also a classic. Uh-huh. And so, anyway, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, I have a TV and film production company that does, you know, some content work, and and uh, I host a series for Discovery Channel. And so there's, you know, there's a there's a side business here that I enjoy because it takes the stress off in a way from the day job of, of running uh, Portman Square Group, which is that's a shameless plug for my corporate intelligence and security services firm. Yeah, and and. You, look, you you have the the show uh, Black Files Declassified, right? On Discovery, what mm-hmm. what what's a black file and what's one that was declassified? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Um, well, let's see. Uh, the the whole idea for that show started uh, a uh, really uh, very good friend and and uh, TV uh, producer and maker of content, Bill Katz, came up with the idea of just saying, look, what if we what if we started with the idea of money? Right. If we're trying to understand what the government does and what the military intelligence communities do, have done, are doing, why don't we use as a premise, start with the, the budgets, right? Because that money's got to be somewhere. It's got to hide somewhere. And so it hides in a black file, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're engaged in MK Ultra, for instance, you're not going to have a line item within, you know, the U.S. government's funding that says MK Ultra. It's going to be put someplace else, right? So it's, uh, you know, or if you're working on a new um, version of the old U2, right, or the Blackbird or whatever, you know, you're going to put that money somewhere. And so the idea is, you know, you find that, you follow the black files, and you learn oftentimes about a program that used to exist that now is morphed into something else. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it was an interesting premise, and it turned out to be a great idea. And, and you know, we, we finished the first two seasons and uh, waiting on – on the third season. So it's, you know, it was exciting. It was good fun. And uh, in between seasons, I worked with Scribd to uh, put together this audio book uh, company rules. So hopefully people enjoy that. It's a, it's a, it's an easy listen, I think. And uh, I voiced it myself. I narrated it myself. And uh, I was, I was conflicted. I wanted to use the, the, the voice like groove from despicable me. Um, but I, I could, I, I thought, okay, nobody wants to hear that for like two hours. But well, it's it's an easy listen. I I love Scribd. I was actually I did a, a book for them. I was their first nonfiction Scribd original, and I know Trip very well. It's a, it's a great company, and yeah. uh, uh, so if people want to find your book, they can go to Scribd and uh, Company Rules by Mike Baker. Mike, once again, thank you so much for for coming on the show. It's been great hearing your hearing your stories and experiences, and and I learned a lot. And I know I learned a lot from the book, so I know the listeners will as well. That's kind of you to say, James. Thanks very much, man. I sure appreciate all the time. Thanks, Mike. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. 
From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 